Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm Jonah Goldberg, your host, and um, we have in the studio today my former colleague. Don't, don't <laughs> um, but uh, enduring good friend Jim Garrity, uh, senior writer at National Review and author of <laughs> Between, <laughs> Between Two Scorpions. A dangerous click, click novel. And there's a picture of Jim on the back that is sort of halfway between puckish and charming and creepy dude that uses way too much internet at the public library. Jim Garrity, welcome back to the Remnant Podcast. Jonah, it's good to see you. I wondered if there was life after National Review. Uh, it, you know, I, I'm very, you know, I, I'm glad for you to have me on. I'm glad to see that there's no National Review embargo. It's, it, I, it's, I, I can almost see in your head, gears in your head. You haven't really left National Review. You're still with National Review Institute. You're still going to contribute to us and all that stuff. You've just got this other thing going on. The book I get asked about a lot. I'm sure you do. And, um, you know, what the heck do I know? I, 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 I hear from lots of people who hear that, who hear from people asking what the hell I'm yeah. doing. And uh, I, I think they're all terrified of asking me directly. But, um, <laughs> but yes, no, look, I, I love National Review. Uh, contrary to some of the lower orders of coprophagic phylums of the Twitter sphere. I wasn't pushed out, nor did I leave in some grand huff. Many of you guys are still among my closest friends. And I have, as we were doing just before we started recording, I've yet to figure out how to talk about National Review without saying personal pronouns like we. Mm. So uh, it will always be near and dear to my heart, even even when I'm luxuriating in my Aegean villa Thanks to the immense profits <laughs> from my media empire. Um, so this is very exciting. This, yeah. is, this is your second novel. Correct. Uh, previous one, The Weed Agency, was in uh, 2014. It was a comic satire. It was kind of looking at life, why the federal bureaucracy is the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um, from the look from the view from the top, from the view from the bottom. And it uh, was a Washington Post bestseller for one week on the nonfiction bestseller list. I don't You're know. Really? Yes. <laughs> And the important thing here is that once they've announced it, they can't take it back. I can still tout it as a. Is that right? Yeah. Now here's. I'll be. I have no idea how that happened or why. I think people just either got classified the wrong way or whatever it was. But the important thing is, I've written a Washington Post bestseller. But so so, do you have any idea? It would be interesting to go back and look at the book scan numbers. Whether you would have ranked higher on the fiction list. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, yeah, I would have to – maybe I'll have to do that someday. I mean – But if I didn't make it, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be bad. Oh, no, no, no yeah. t- Take the W, right? Yeah. You know, it's like a Super Bowl ring. Yes. You can't take it away from um, I mean, like, I, the way I've always you know, said to myself is, look, this is ex- it was extremely well-researched. People you who know, work in the federal government like, oh, my God, it feels like you've been there in my workplace. Uh, it is something of an off-place, uh, office comedy. Um, it t- begins kind of in the beginning of the Reagan era and ends up with Obama's second term. And it's, of course, the lifetime of these people. And, you know, in some ways, very sympathetic look at federal workers. They very often enter with the best of intentions and uh, they assimilate into the collective, as the Borg yeah. would say. Um, well, as, as Nietzsche would say, when you look into the abyss, the abyss looks into you. There you go. And the abyss has a lot of paperwork, it turns out. So. Indeed it does. Yeah. So, but um, your so, new book. Yes. Between Two Scorpions. So I've had the idea for this for a while. I remember in a, com- in a past uh, – probably a past remnant appearance. It sounds the, like a very dark Zach Galifianakis web TV show. But. It's not, though. No. <laughs> that would be kind of fun to see. You know. um, no. So uh, – actually, actually – so, between two scorpions, people are like, oh, was, are there are there scorpions in it? No, but there are snakes and there are bugs. So there's some very Indiana Jonesy elements to okay, all this. Okay. Uh, it's about a small CIA team that basically has been operating 
with very long leash for a very long time. Um, and all of a sudden they get word about a terrorist group that is planning something terrible and planning something completely different. And I wrote a little bit about this earlier this week. For all the, this is very 24-ish. This is very much chasing the bad guys. There's a lot, if you don't like seeing people shot in the head, this is probably not the novel for you. And well, our, well, you mean imagining because there are no pictures. That there are some uh, – uh, I, I did a graphic – so there's a – at one point they find the novel of a man who's slowly oh, – I'm sorry. The, uh, they find the diary uh-huh. of a man who's slowly going mad uh-huh. because he's been trapped on Snake Island, which is a real place off the coast of Brazil, which has more snakes per square meter than any other place on earth. And oh, by the way, it's the home of the most deadly snake venom on the entire planet. Which guys, the what? Uh, the Golden Lancehead Viper, I believe. Is really? I thought yes. the Gabon Viper was the most poisonous. But anyway. Well, I... you know. So um, they find – so I, I've always believed, you know, if you, if you have to show off the sheer geekiness to your audience, mm-hmm. role-playing games. They call them in-game artifacts, right? The idea that you – you when you when you're reading something and you see what the character sees, right? Uh-huh. This, you know, if they talk about a map and then all of a sudden you're reading it, the story, and there's the map, right? So they find this guy's diary uh, as he's slowly losing his mind trapped on this snake island. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna write it myself. I'm going to hand write it. I took them. I put them in um, – you know how you get the parchment look for, for you know, for paper? Mm-hmm. Put it in coffee. Uh-huh. Yep. All those years of spilling coffee, like papers on my desk, I finally figured out that's how you give it that kind of brown, golden, uh, burned the edges, all that kind of stuff. I learned this when I used to make uh, counterfeit baseball cards. But anyway, go there on. you go. All right. So, so, so when you get to that, uh, all the illustrations are me and all that kind of stuff. And on Facebook, I, at one point I wanted to do this as a graphic novel. Uh, and then I realized just how long it was going to take to actually draw all this kind of stuff. So uh, on social media, I've been drawing, I've been sharing some of the pictures and stuff like that. So the short version is um, we, we've we lucked out uh, when it comes to terror, the war on terrorism, believe it or not, in that as bad as 9-11 has been, as bad as Orlando, San Bernardino, um, Islamist terror groups by and large don't understand us. Mm-hmm. They thought that the 9-11 attacks were going to destroy the American economy. Now, we went through some very rough times. No two ways about that. It was a terrible event, but uh, it did not uh, destroy us. They seemed to think that there was some sort of mechanism or something in there that ran the whole country. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, apparently, in his interrogations at one point, said to his interrogator, some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the gist was, how the hell were we supposed to know George W. Bush was going to invade Afghanistan? Right. We thought, you know, uh, ISIS. He also, though, I believe, said more than once, ow, quit it. <laughs> said, but anyway, go on. Or glug, glug, glug. Yes. Um, <laughs> The uh, ISIS believed that their videos were going to intimidate us. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and so the good news is they don't really understand us. But I start thinking about like, if there was a terror group that really did study American culture, that really did study American pop culture and our media and, and how we think and how we react to things and said, OK, how do we really frighten the American people um, without giving too much away? In addition to landmarks, having your attacks occur in any town America, mm-hmm. um, if you're having, you know, uh, various video. Okay, so if I use the terms the Max Headroom incident, mm-hmm. does this ring any bells to you? I, I, I just say you're. I I know who Max Headroom. Was. Okay, okay. It's yeah, not it, actually... was a, it was a really creepy thing, still unexplained. Basically, a guy like a Max Headroom's uh, lookalike took hacked a TV station and just broadcast for an hour or so, just saying weird stuff and no one yeah. to this day knows how it happened or who did it yeah and so, it wasn't keith oberman no no, no. Okay. so this is um you're 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 a little sh- the, the, you're ju- you're you're just as right you did it twice in one night it was generally for only a couple minutes each one one was during the regular news the other one was during a broadcast of doctor who this was back in like 1986 87 or so in chicago and what they figured out was 
He had the equipment between, usually you have your TV station in one spot, broadcasting up to a high antenna, which sends out the broadcast signal. Right. Now we have cable and all, you know, all kind of stuff. But in the days of broadcast, you'd get your broadcast signal from the top of the Sears Tower or the top of the Empire State Building or the top of the Twin Towers, which is when the 9-11 attacks occurred. A whole bunch of people lost their signal mm -hmm. because of the interruption to that. This guy figured out a way to put some sort of broadcast equipment, the kind of stuff you'd find in a news van or something, amp up his signal and send it to the top of the Sears Tower. And his – the Sears Tower then started sending out his signal instead of the one that was supposed to be coming from that. Mm. The bad guys use this to – we've all seen in the movies the, you know, attention, attention world, world I've taken over, over. And, you know, on every screen in Times Square or sure. something like that. And that really can't be done. But this thing has been done back in the early – the late 80s. And it – and as you said, they never caught the guy. Um, they have a couple theories about who it could have been or something, but the FCC never, you know. So the idea of a terror group, basically everyone's now well, taking over the airwaves and sending, we're going to kill you in your sleep type right, messages. Right, 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 right. You're getting an idea of, of how this terror group Very does. exciting. Thank you. So, and, 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 and is it is Islamic? It's Islamic? Um, the true identity and motive of the terror group is a big, big debating point as the attacks continue. Okay. So and some yeah, of this, I mean, fortunately, a sense of. I didn't get the book in time. Yes. I haven't read it. I will be reading it. Um, um. But it, it it spares me from any possibility of issuing spoilers. Yes, I actually don't know. So Excellent. you must police yourself about. This. Yeah. Um. Let's say the 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 sure. I, I guess the simply answer to say I won't tell you the exact motive of the terror group. Um. I'll just say at various points, the goal appears to be terror for terror's sake. Uh huh. Uh, that there isn't a clear set of demands. There isn't a clear set, and that I think it, it enhances the fear. The other thing I kind of some people just want to see the world burn. Uh, you know, coupled with that, um, the other kind of more you know, people ask you, know, it, it, it's not a political book. It's a thriller. You're meant to have a good time watching people's heads explode. Um, and by the way, our good dear friend Catherine Lopez says she can't wait to read it. And this is the one where you know, I don't know about you. When I go to the pearly gates and I go, I meet Saint Peter. I'm going to say, look, I know Catherine Lopez. No, exactly. And that should get me through. I yeah, think, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so my thought, so, so the idea of Catherine reading all about all of the, you know, you know, get them and you know, all yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of stuff is, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about that. But the other thing I think about is that, uh, are there many sex scenes? Go on, go on. There's a post-coital scene. Okay. I'll just say, because everyone, you know, you know, there's a contest for like the worst written sex scenes. Of yeah, all. yeah, yeah. You know, this is something that's a lot more fun to do than to write about or mm -hmm. to read about. Uh, so my goal was to just, you know, create the the, the post-coital scene mm -hmm. and let your imagination kind of figure out what had happened immediately preceding that. Nice. That was my way of dancing around that. But yeah, Catherine's going to read that too. So yeah. awesome. The other, but my, the other, if there's any type of serious point to this. Uh, as I'm sure you no doubt have noticed every time you check your email, Jonah, and have tens of thousands of unread emails in there, we're an angry country. Just for the record. Sure. Hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. But I go think. on. Yeah. <laughs> no, there are I, – I would argue, and some people would probably strongly disagree with me, there's a common thread between the nut job who is sent, trying to send the bombs to the Trump critics, the guy who shot up the softball baseball game mm -hmm. uh, at, over at, in Alexandria – uh, Omar Mateen shooting up the Orlando nightclub and uh, the synagogue shooter. Like all these guys have basically decided I'm going to find fulfillment in mm -hmm. killing a lot of people. And if you're a terror group, if you're somebody who hates America, you want to hurt Americans, you've got a lot of raw material to work with. Sure, sure, sure. And so that's kind of the – if there's any serious point in that, um, that's – that's what Between Two Scorpions explores a bit. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. So, I mean, this is something I've talked about a bunch of times on here is that one of the downsides to the interwebs is that prior to the internet, if you were, just to pick an example, a pedophile, it's really hard to meet other pedophiles, right? I mean, it's like you can't 
You'd, you'd like to think so. You'd hope so. <laughs> it's hard to advertise meetings, you know, yeah. and um, <laughs> and one of the problems with the internet it is a lot, whether it's pedophiles or alt right neo Nazi types or whatever, mm-hmm. it gives you the illusion that and the affirmation that there are many people just like you. Mm-hmm. And it's always seemed to me that, that, that this was a real danger when it comes to things like terrorism, where these quote unquote lone wolves type, right? All they need to do is figure out the right chat room where they aren't monitored and you could get – all you need is four or five of them, never mind 40 or 50 of them. And it, the willingness, the sort of Colonel Kurtz mm. willingness to do horrible things where everybody's reinforcing it amongst themselves could become a really huge, huge problem. You know, a, a, there was a show on Fox a few years ago or 10 years ago. That was actually kind of great. It had Kevin Bacon and um, yes, the the, the Brit- following, yeah, and it was about this like uh, I think he was a UVA professor, or, but he was like a, a professor of English literature, mostly on Edgar Allan Poe or something, and he created a cult where it was a stabbing cult. Yeah, people just like got really stabby, <laughs> um, and I, I mean, of course, it was obviously far fetched, mm. but I think there's possible. That's a that's a that's a thing in our future. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, so I came up with this sort of a if I were trying to you know be an evil terrorist, what would I do? And um, one, both the most the most positive and negative responses is when I showed this both to people who work in law enforcement. Uh, James Gogliano is a CNN law enforcement uh, uh, analyst who's been the FBI special agent and mm-hmm. for lots of years. Um, people in the intelligence community who'd rather I didn't mention their name, things like that, who looked at this and said, yeah, we worry about this. Yeah. This is a, you know, what, what you're describing in this novel is the sort of thing we've, we've figured that there's not an easy way to stop. So, so yeah. So there you go. So the two scorpions, I mean, if it's a okay, spoiler, great. we won't. No, no, you're okay. Yeah. So, but like, right. is one terrorist group, one scorpion, another terrorist group, another scorpion, or is the evil Leviathan deep state the other scorpion? I mean, okay. who, are, who are the scorpions? Here? All right. You ready for this? Yes. It is absolutely not. So we, we went through a million and one different titles. Uh-huh. Without getting into p- – people will be able to surmise certain things about me because of this this novel. So my main character's name is Katrina Leonidovna, uh, who is an immigrant from Burkara, Ube- Uzbekistan. Mm-hmm. But was back then when she came over from the, from the Soviet Union. When you are a Jew in the Soviet Union, particularly in those parts of the Soviet Union, you have the communists who hate you, mm-hmm. who have done everything they can to suppress religion, plus, the, you know, whatever deep baked in anti-Semitism is in the Soviet apparatus and in the Russian state – but also, Uzbekistan is a heavily Muslim country. Mm-hmm. So you also have the Muslims who don't particularly like the Jews. So uh, the father of my protagonist describes that growing up in this country, you know, living in that country was like growing up between two scorpions. Oh, okay. There were two different groups that hated you for two completely different reasons, but either one could strike at any given time and stuff. So it's less about – but then, of course, if you want to see parallels between the threat of the terrorists and perhaps the threat of the reaction to the terrorism, if you want to see that metaphor in place, you certainly can. So I was kind of hoping – that it was going to be a veiled play on the philosophical parable of Buridan's ass. Do you know Buridan's ass? I do not. Okay, so Buridan's ass, medieval philosopher. Can't remember what Buridan's first name was, but it's a, it's a thought experiment about a donkey or an ass mm-hmm. or Keith Olbermann, whatever, right? <laughs> who is between. Um, in some versions, it's like between two bales of hay. Another one, it's between a bowl of water and a bale of hay or whatever, but he's between two equal goods. And because there's no rational way to decide which one he should go to, he starves to death. Mm. And well, it's not a great 
philosophical parable. <laughs> but uh, is it, the, the, sort of stuck with me. The paralysis of analysis or the paralysis of indecision? Or? There's something like that in there. And it, it supposedly gets into medieval notions about the limits of reason and, and all sorts of stuff or something like that. I am sure I'm going to get just deluged with people saying I've completely mangled this. But uh, it's always – that's the way I always remembered it. There are a couple of those kind of – like Zeno's Arrow. There are these fun mm-hmm. things like that. So, so do you – Let's 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 stipulate mm-hmm. that the American marketplace is full of wise and discer- discerning consumers, <laughs> and this becomes a runaway bestseller. Do you see yourself going sort of Brad Thor on us and becoming a, just a full time novelist? Um, if that if that door was open to me, I'd be very tempted to do it. Uh-huh. Um, I, I also noticed that I, I imagine you might be in the same way, so I'll be on vacation next week. Technically, uh-huh. uh, by the way, for those who are all of your listeners, actually, this will be going up next to you. It may have happened by the time people. Yeah, well, the, the space time continues all okay. messed up on the anyway, spot. So I do have a, a book uh, book reading book signing down in, in Hilton Head next week. Um, the uh, but otherwise, I'm I'm off. I find myself. When I'm not working and I take the week off, like getting up in the morning and wanting to write a jolt, wanting to mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm. I cannot believe that happened. I got to write about this. Yes, you yes, know? Yes. Um, so I, I, I doubt I will ever stop, completely stop writing about politics. Having yeah. said that, do I have ideas for many sequels and would I love to write a whole series of these? Heck yes. Yeah. Um, for, anyone, for anyone who's like ready to run out to their bookstore, as of now, so uh, Between Two Scorpions is published by Amazon. Mm-hmm. Which means that at least for now, it is only available through Amazon. I want, Interesting. I don't want to get into the contractual things. They're uh-huh. agreeing to promote it a certain amount of time. After a certain amount of time, I am allowed to go to other publishers and get it to your Barnes and Noble or bookstores or stuff like that. But for now, it is only available through Amazon. It's available in ebook, Kindle. Uh, that's an entire three dollars and ninety nine cents. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed my work over the years, this is a nice way to say thank you. If you prefer the more tactile experience, the paperback is an entire thirteen dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's you know that's so it's going myself. straight to paperback, no hardcover. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I want to ask you more about the Amazon deal later because, sure. as you know, I'm somewhat interested in in uh, uh, affairs book. Mm. Um, I promise not to use too much French. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, it's funny you say this about the the compulsion to write. It's one of the reasons why I really I, I need hobbies because, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with downtime except to drink brown liquor and watch weird TV and write, you know, and read, you know, and but I read to write, you know, I read stuff that I to use to write, and having. What we created the corner on National Review, the group blog, mm-hmm. uh, 2003 ish, something like that, 2004 ish, I want to say. And so for almost two decades, right? Better part of two decades. Whenever I felt like I needed to sort of opine on something, I had an immediate place to go. Mm-hmm. And I've now been gone from NR world for two weeks, and <laughs> I feel like a big dog whose food bowl has been moved. I mean, like, what, 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 what's going on? And it's like, there's, and Twitter, all of a sudden, like, and Twitter was like sucking me away from the corner for a long time. All of a sudden, now Twitter feels utterly inadequate for the stuff I want to say. It's really kind of a weird feeling to have. And I know exactly what you're talking about about being on vacation. That's that's one of the things about when you're writing a book. You always it's it's. It's a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, writing books is awful because no matter what you're doing, you f- feel like you're wasting time, right? Like if you're working on the book, there's all this other stuff you got to do. Mm-hmm. If you're doing the other stuff, you're like, damn it, I got this book I got to get done, right? Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about it is that you always have an excuse to just open up your laptop and get back to work because it's just yeah. background you know, obligation. 
So, uh, no, I'm, I'm very envious. As you know, we've talked about this a lot. I've wanted to do fiction for a long time. I never planned on being a pundit. I wanted to do uh, science fiction and comic books when I was a kid. And one of these days, I'm going to get back to it. But uh, I'm very excited for you. I'm very excited for this. And um, um, we're going to change topics for a little bit now. Please but no you are entire in, in the as we are both members of the guild of hackish pundits <laughs> and and self-promoting book authors. Mm-hmm. So anytime you feel like as we're talking about something else, you say, well, this reminds me of something in my book. Right. You get a free pass. All right. Okay? So that's fair. And, and, and we will award points for creativity, sort of like segues for the advertisings on these podcasts. For example, this week's episode is brought to you by Sleep Number Bed. As I've explained before, um, I actually love sleep number beds, and I really, really, really want to have them. And I mentioned this, and then somebody, when we were talking about doing a Q&A podcast, said, well, why don't you explain why you can't have one? And the reason I can't have one is when we redid our house, the architect that we used was I, – I, I don't mean to make light of this. He was towards the end of the thing, and he was mugged and horribly beaten oh in God. DuPont Circle. Oh, my God. And he – phoned in the rest of the job <laughs> and he got the measurements of our stair- understandably yeah, 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 you yeah. know so he phoned in the measurements of our staircase and so when it came time to move in we had this unbelievable crisis where almost none of the furniture that had once been upstairs that had to be moved out could go back up the stairs <laughs> and the way the sleep number bed thing works is just it we just can't get it up unless we got a hoist or something and we want to move Sooner rather than Tear later. off the roof and then you, yeah. Yeah, so th- that's the issue. But sleep number beds are awesome and particularly as you, as, 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 as I move further and further away from the platonic ideal of the perfect physical form, um, I find that like I have more and more back problems, more and more sleep issues and sleep number beds are fantastic for dealing with that kind of thing. You know, if you've got a weird, if your wife has, or your spouse or partner or occasional guest or, or, or whoever is in this post-coital scene in between two scorpions, whatever issues you might have, it just allows you more choices for how you can do things. I have been known on occasion to snore, and what my wife has to do these days is is move physically move me, which is a difficult task under the best of circumstances, and this solves a lot of those kinds of problems. So maybe you've considered a sleep number bed but thought you couldn't afford one. But can you really afford to be tossing and turning on your old mattress, compromising your sleep? There's never been a better time to save on proven quality sleep. It's the lowest prices of the season right now at your nearest sleep number store. So many dis- so many couples disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep number 360 smart beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for both of you. The Sleep number 360 smart beds are so smart, they sense your every move. It's kind of like Skynet for a mattress. <laughs> and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Sleep number has been ranked number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses by JD Power. For 2018 award information, just visit jdpower.com. So, come in during the lowest prices where a Queen Sleep number 360 C4 smart bed is now only $1,299. Save $400 for a limited time. You'll only find Sleep Number at any of the 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash dingo. That's sleepnumber.com Slash D-I-N-G-O. There you go. So, 
Uh, you wrote a piece that got uh, pretty that went <laughs> semi-viral recently. Yes, about the um, the rights grifter problem. Yes, uh, this is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. It's one of the motivating factors for my new thing. Um, why don't you sort of walk me through it a little bit? Sure. Um, so, for those who follow online conservatives, uh, I've been trying to figure out some sort of way to describe what I, I've recently been calling it the David French War. Mm-hmm. If you can, is it Sora Mamari? I feel like I'm, I've, I've mm-hmm. dealt with the guy. I've never actually, I rarely pronounce his name, at least never rarely pronounced correctly the first time. The French and Amari War, maybe is a good way to, you know, I'm waiting for something to do with the French and Indian War. If, if only he wasn't from Iran, but right? from India. Yeah. Like, but what, anyways, were, so, what were the writers of this timeline thinking? Yeah. Uh, they're so close. But anyway, so this is going on. And uh, there are, you know, generally I'm more on the French side. I can see what's irking the Amari side. Sure. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I see where they're coming from. But it kind of struck me as kind of beside the issue. The, 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 all of this was a kind of a theoretical pro- – if you look at you know, what, what's really ailing conservatism. And the interesting thing is people have written about what they call – we want to call them scam packs, grifter packs, political action committees that raise a whole lot of money. And generally, you, we've all gotten these emails. We've all gotten these mailers and letters. We've all gotten these uh, – you know, our, our parents probably have gotten these phone calls. It generally is some variation of, you know, the future of America is at stake. And if you don't give now, you know – um, so those are – they've been around for a long time. Probably mm. – I think a lot of them took root during the rise of the era of the Tea Party mm-hmm. because there mm-hmm. was no big institutional group that controlled the Tea Party the mm-hmm. way the Republican National Committee is supposed to run the, the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Anybody could show up and say, hey, we're the Tea Party. Some of these groups were genuine. Hey, hey, we're the Tea Party. Sorry. Yeah, you know, some people uh, – some of these groups were genuine and authentic and really wanted to use the money. And some of these groups said, oh – yeah, you know, we can raise a lot of money writing letters to little old ladies who would mm-hmm. you know would believe what we're saying. You know, the future of America is at stake, and if I don't write a check for twenty five dollars now, you know, and I've seen Dick Morris on TV, so he must be telling the truth. President Obama is <laughs> going to sell the state of Nebraska to China. You know that kind of stuff. And uh, the the other, you know, so these were bad, exa- you know, good examples of a, a very bad trend. The ones that said donate now so you can help support Sheriff David Clark for Senate in Wisconsin. Mm. Sheriff David Clark was not interested in running for Senate in Wisconsin. Alan West in Florida, they were doing the uh, claim that he was going to run for Senate, never mind the fact that he was living in Texas at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Ingram, uh, who, you know, uh, a lot of folks in our world might have a bit of a beef with or something, but I think it's, I think it's genuinely egregious to claim she's running for Senate in Virginia, which she's not. And she kept several times came out and said, I am not running for Senate. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's using my name like this is trying to take advantage of you. This is, mm-hmm. you know, um, and you write, you see articles written about this. Politico did a good one. The guys at right wing news did a good study of this, mm-hmm. but not much changes. And I just decided to go through like the last decade yeah. of both news articles. And we'll and link other, to it in the show notes. Yeah. It's, and it's file, important for people to look at. Yeah. I mean, so the idea is that this is not a one-time thing. This is not, oh, one or two bad apples. And the one thing I'll, I, you know, I don't have any other correction, but I'll just put one little kind of asterisk or note there. So one of the measuring sticks I use is, look, if you say you're raising money to support – under the FEC, you have to say, here's how we're spending our money and how much of the money is being spent directly to this campaign to help this candidate. And a whole bunch of these cases, they were spending – one percent, two percent, three percent of their fundraising for the cycle went to the candidates. Everything else went to other expenses, right? Overhead stuff like that, which was also you know writing themselves large checks or hookers and cocaine. Maybe. Yeah, well, you know, also more fundraising. You know, we're, we're hiring more telemarketers. You know, just it becomes a self perpetuating institution, not so focused on the alleged goal that they're telling people is we're going to help elect Republican candidates. So I added it all up, and I think you know you can go from anywhere from depending on how you measure it, seventy seven million dollars to one hundred twenty seven million dollars over the last let's say since two thousand eleven. Mm-hmm. Now, you know. 
would we have a Republican House if that money had not been spent there? Would we have more Republican governors, more Republican state legislators? Would we have more conservatives winning primary fights if that money had not gone right. you know, down the drain? I think we would. And if you ask me, you know, what's holding back conservatism? The fact that conservative donors' money doesn't go to where they think it is. It's not going, you know, and it's, it, it, by our, you, know, you could, you know, some people said, look, one of the groups, I think it was America Rising or no, one, one of the groups said, look, we did a bus tour. The, the bus tour was John Voight and mm-hmm. Rudy Giuliani and stuff like that. And they said, it doesn't count as a direct expenditure towards the helping the candidate, but we were doing this, we were doing voter registration drives and stuff. So maybe not every non-candidate expenditure is definitely a waste. Mm-hmm. I do think we could definitely have a conversation about the effectiveness of sending John Voigt on a on a bus tour around the country. Maybe it's effective. Maybe it's not. If they blasted out the loudspeakers, that closing music from Midnight Cowboy would be kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is not to have a beef with John Voigt. Or just sure, sure, observation sure. that like maybe it helped, maybe it didn't. But a lot of these groups are spending it on overhead, which is not helping the candidates. Right. Um, and I think I think for you know, the vast majority of the PACs listed in that article, their spending is unjustifiable. And, you know, it was interesting. There were some writers who I won't mention because I uh, try not to make enemies. But we're like, well, that isn't really a real issue. Or the real issue is David French. You know, you know, like there are people who basically look, there are people who are convinced that the biggest problem facing conservatism is whatever self-identified right of center writer has pissed them off that morning. Mm-hmm. I hope I can say that on this podcast. Yes, you can. Okay. And they don't want to be told, you know, I mean, you know, admittedly, my article involved math mm-hmm. and maybe that, maybe that bothered some people, but in, you know, at the risk of being a little smug and, and, you know, irritated, uh, you know, no, this is why conservatism has had, you know, is that, you know, we're, we're operating on some small fraction of the funding we should, because a bunch of it goes off to these organizations that don't actually do anything. And even the ones that do say we spent, you know, Look, if your contribution to helping a candidate win is a radio ad in the last week when one third of the votes are cast like, you know, in the, in the early voting period, don't, don't, you don't get to take credit for those victories. Right. You know? So anyway, so this is right, yeah. so I, I, yeah. a little pushback on it. Oh, I agree. It's entirely a, a problem. I, I, I don't think the chief indictment of it is that we're diverting funds that otherwise could have gone to Republicans, although that's a perfectly legitimate concern. The chief indictment of it is it's freaking wrong. It's True. it's 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 a grift. It's yeah. evil to tell. It's not that different from uh, uh, scam charities, which oh by the way they did finally prosecute the first guy, the prosecuted guy up in New York City, okay. late last year. So, and I would also say that there's a sociological problem with it is that when you tell people mm-hmm. that if they don't send fifty dollars to keep China from buying Nebraska, to use your mm-hmm. example, right, and they get people to write that fifty dollars. Those people psychologically now have a major psychological commitment to the idea that Nebraska almost went to the Chinese, yeah. right? And so it is part of the larger radicalizing process because they, these people literally have buy-in. They don't want to be yeah. made a fool by, to find out that they were lied to. So they actually, through a psychological process, believe it even more. And that is a dangerous thing for the country. Um the other thing is, so uh, the la- I believe the last time you were on here, uh, and and I apologize to listeners because I'm going to make this argument forever, and you're never going to get away from it. And it's it was the subject of the first post NRG file. Um, I I talked about it with George Will. I'm going to talk about I've talked I talked about it with you when you were last here. That one of the main problems we have in this country is in terms of politics is that the parties are too weak. 
and that outside forces, whether they are outside institutions, whether they're good or bad is not my point, right? So, you know, uh, you're more sympathetic to the NRA than probably I am, but we're both sympathetic to the cause they represent. Eh, there's a grift going on. There is a grift going <laughs> yeah, on there, right? Yeah. That, that, that would have an easier statement like two months ago, but okay. go ahead, yeah. But we're also – we also probably have a, a, an ample amount of objection to, say, Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Right. Okay. But there are these institutions like that that because, as Mitch McConnell said with campaign finance reform, we didn't get money out of politics. We just got the parties out of politics, mm. right? These institutions the, – the the idea that Edmund Burke had about how parties should function and that uh, was really sort of put into focus by Martin Van Buren, who if you told me a year ago I'd be like a big fan of Martin Van Buren, I, I thought you were crazy. And at some point we're going to do a podcast on how the era of good feelings wasn't an era and wasn't good. Um, but uh, the point of, of parties is that they are supposed to take members of a generally philosophically aligned coalition – and get them to compromise with each other so that their agenda can actually be enacted, right? If mm. if every member of the coalition took a 100% no compromise position, they that party would lose. And so everybody sort of agrees, we're going to cool it on this stuff a little bit, and we'll take half a loaf here, and we'll help you there if you help us here, and that kind of thing. When the parties get sufficiently weak, the members of that coalition have lost the mediating influence of a middleman, and they go for 100% positions on everything. And so it was interesting. I think you're exactly right. I remember writing about the grifter problem at the end of the Tea Party era as well. Because there was no central organization for the Tea Parties, all you needed was a subject header saying Tea Party Express or Tea yep. Party whatever, and you could rip people off. And that's exactly the argument I am making about the parties. Um, when the parties cannot exert discipline on members of their coalition, you get this sort of Wild West problem. And if I had my druthers, we would – I would even be open. I mean, I, I'm philosophically, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that, that money is speech and that people should be out of whatever. But – so maybe we keep that part. Maybe we don't. I'd have to think about it. But what I would definitely do is get rid of all limitations on giving money to parties. Mm. And the parties have – are, when they're healthy, they have an institutional interest in their long-term brand. Mm. When they're weak, they just basically become marketing brands. It's sort of like you know how they're like butter – they're dairy farms that make butter and then they – maybe they sell their butter to Land O'Lakes or maybe they sell it to the to Safeway as this generic brand. It's still the same butter because it's a commodity. Mm -hmm. That's what the RNC and the DNC have generally become is just brand names that are slapped on at the end of the process. And so – that's one of the reasons why the party has gotten so Trumpy is because the guy in power is now the brand of republicanism. And I would argue that what we need are much, much stronger parties because that would temper a lot of this stuff. If you didn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval from the GOP or the DNC, a lot of these grifters couldn't do what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, worth noting, it's interesting you brought up Trump in this context because this did get a little more attention than usual recently because of David Bossie. And mm -hmm. the organization that he had founded and the fact that very little of what they were collecting over the last cycle was actually being spent on – because he said he was going to – he was setting up a PAC or he'd take an existing PAC and he said our new mission would be to elect Republicans who support the Trump agenda. Mm -hmm. And we're going to support them in primaries and, you know – and, also, and I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. It was something like 3 percent. Some extremely small amount actually went to candidates. The vast majority of it went to perpetuating the new – this David – and where did this got back to the president's, you know – 
crew and 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 you know serious advisors that wait a minute, Bossy's fundraising saying he's helping you, Mr. President, and he's not. And right. you know, Trump you know exploded over this. Roger Stone uh, had an issue like this where he had set up some organization, much smaller amount. I want to say it was like the high six figures, mm-hmm. but of that, I think you know less than a hundred grand went towards you know direct efforts to elect the president, and it was and the rest went to like ball gags and various leather apparatus. <laughs> I just his, kinda, his sex I, dungeon. I like to think of this as in volleyball. I set it up for you to spike it, Jonah. Um, so I, so look, if, if you're a Trump fan, you should be livid at these guys, right? Right. These these guys are saying they're helping the president. They're ra- they're raising money off his name, and then they're keeping the money for themselves. And so, the, first of all, so the, you know, of course, and you know, this is the right venue to complain. So I write it. A lot of people like it. A lot of, it names names. This is tough. I don't hold anything back. I got links to open secrets. I got links to the FEC reports. This is all you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the uh, response from Jonathan Chait and Kevin Drum, and mm-hmm. there's like one or two other liberal ninnies out there uh, who basically said, well, you didn't really address the fact that the entire conservative movement is basically a grip, blah, 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 blah. And it was just, you know, in fact, Drum, I know, is almost the funniest. Like, this is a really great reporting and I really shouldn't say anything negative about it. But. <laughs> and, then, and then he continued. I was like, no, stop right there. And yeah, I just, yeah. by the way, I, I just you know, nearly gave Jack a heart attack because I wanted to pound the table really hard. <laughs> but I know that every time I do it, it sounds like there's a drum solo going on while I speak. So. Calm down, Khrushchev. There you go. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. So I was just like, you know, this is great reporting, but no, right. screw you. Get, sh- shut your mouth. And you know, Anyway, so. So, yes, your, your observation that in the end, the Repu- you know, like the, the Trumpified Republican Party Look, there are a lot of reasons why you don't want your movement to turn into a cult of personality. If you're going to pick it, you better pick the right personality. Um, The degree to which – like apparently CNN was doing a big thing today where they said they couldn't get a single Republican to come on air to defend Trump's recent statement that – that if a foreign government offered him assistance again, he would would take it. Of course, he would look at it. He wouldn't go to the FBI. Um, My first observation, by the way, is in this environment right now, if some if someone claiming to be from a foreign government comes along and says, "Comrade, I have all kinds of information about your this is my Russian accent uh, about your opponent." Uh, Thank you for the explainer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, can I, you I, do a Ted Cruz accent in Russian? Harris <laughs> uh, Shaw, Dosvidanya, comrade. <laughs> um, so the, the the gist there being like. If, if anybody offers you oppo research and they seem to be from a foreign country right now, it's almost certainly a setup. Okay, right, right. don't take the you know you know you're probably if it's not the media, if it's not law enforcement, this is you know. Um, but Trump doesn't even do that. He doesn't even, you know, doesn't even recognize that. So you know, no Republican lawmaker was willing to go on CNN today and defend this. He puts Republican lawmakers in a situation where they just they can't defend, and so mm-hmm. they're just not going to do interviews because they're going to be asked about this. You know, like, so a couple of things on that. One. Um... I was just having a conversation earlier today with somebody about this. Even if all of these grifter things were completely above board and actually committed to the Trump agenda, right, and all that kind of stuff, I am still – and again, this is this is part of the theme of this podcast. It's part of the reason why I'm starting this new thing. I am deeply skeptical that Trumpism as – nebulously, amorphously defined these days, has long legs past Trump for precisely oh. the kind of reason you're talking about. It's like uh, the beloved and sainted Kate O'Byrne, she always used to say one of the great things about working for Reagan was he was so clear in his messaging about what he wanted that you didn't have to check with the old man for everything that you did because you kind of you got your marching orders. Mm-hmm. The tone was set from the top. 
with the exception of like the wall, the only messaging that makes it through to the political and even the bureaucratic operation that is cooperative with them is don't do stuff that will piss off Trump or do stuff that will make Trump look good and all the rest. And so, you know, it was it was emblematic of Trumpism that they tried to hide the USS John McCain. Yeah. Right? That is there is something where oh, yeah. I know what the old man would want, you know, but because Trump constantly contradicts himself on policy stuff, with the exception of the wall and yeah. a couple other handful of things, tariffs, right? Yeah. Um, which political handlers and bureaucrats have no control over anyway. No one has the kind of marching orders that lets you build an alternative political thing. And that's the context of the French Amari mm. thing that I think is kind of interesting is, you know, the first things people have a profound underpants gnome problem, right? It's like step one, discard liberal democratic capitalism and rally around Donald Trump as this social force of social cohesion. Yeah. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, integralist Catholic nirvana, yeah. right? And and the and and the other reason why it's Trumpism, I don't think can last, is that whenever you look at, with the exception of maybe DeSantis in Florida, although his messaging was less "I'm like Trump" than "I am a craven lickspittle of Trump," which is a slightly <laughs> different message. Whenever people try to imitate Trump, mm. be pugnacious, rude, insulting. People don't like it. Even even Republican primary voters do it. So there's very little, you know, I think, I think what's his name, Josh Hawley? Um, is it Josh? Josh, yeah. right? He's actually trying for something intellectually coherent. I'm not sure I agree with it. That could be called sort of post-Trump Trumpism. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I think when this bubble pops, this sort of populist bubble pops, there's going to be a flight back to quality. Yeah. And then the quality is going to be these ideas that George Will talks about in his book, that I talk about in my book, that, that National Review has represented for a very long time, because those arguments have passed the kick the tire test for a very long time. And the arguments about Trumpism almost always devolve eventually to his personality. Mm. Um, having picked on a couple of lefties earlier in this conversation, one of the more intriguing things, I think it, just for not, not for being original, but just for crystallizing, uh, a very true fact that's kind of going on, but we don't necessarily say out loud. It came from Benji Sarlin, who's with one of the liberal magazines. Mm. And he had said, uh, one of the reasons you're seeing this intense, you know, uh, French Amari fight and these intense debates while Trump is in office is one, as you said, there's not, there's no coherent Trumpism, uh, particularly on, on, other than on a few issues that the policy can divide a lot. So everybody kind of knows at some point Trump leaves the stage. Could be January 2021, could be January 2025. Um, to leave some assets on Twitter, it could be like 2037, right? Because he <laughs> apparently is going to refuse to leave yeah, office. Yeah. I mean, at some point, he's not there. And let, you know, God forbid, you know, for all my criticism of Trump, I hope he lives to be 100. But let's say he has a, has a heart attack tomorrow and Pence takes over. Mike Pence would be a very different presidency yes. than what we've seen from Donald Trump. Um, and so the question you put to, to the Trump diehards is, okay, who's, who's the real successor? Who's the guy who really will carry the torch for Trumpism? You know, you, 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 it, Pence isn't that guy. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be Jared. It's not going to be Ivanka. Right. And there's, there's not a lot of junior, right. Um, there's not a lot of people who, who, who have that thing. Maybe you'll say Tom Cotton and mm -hmm. uh, okay. The, the, the military guy who went to Harvard, right. You know, like, right. like the irony is that the people who may have the best shot of 
continuing Trumpism, as amorphous as it is, are very different figures from from Donald Trump. Um, so I think there's this recognition that at some point Trump leaves, and then it's an open ball. Maybe Nikki Haley mm-hmm. is the person who would be able to probably the best able to bridge the divide between the two. You know, um, so I think this is you know a huge fight that's that's it's an underfight. It's it's something that's still going on right now because we recognize. And like I'm probably like one or two steps closer to you know to Trumpiness than you are, which mm-hmm. is not saying that much. But my attitude, because you know people are like, well, where are you standing? You know, I want to get as much good stuff to his desk as possible. Sure, I want sure. him to sign it into law. Look, we're stuck with him for a while. I want him to, to get as much good stuff past him as I possibly can. Sure, sure, sure. And um, you know, I, I think it was a Tom Nichols or somebody who said that you know ultimately the end of it was something like some gist that Trump was not legitimate. And Lord knows every day he comes out and says something that, you know, makes you want to tear your hair out. But his attitude was that nothing should happen until the end of Trump's presidency. Uh, that basically American democracy should remain in stasis. American governance should remain in stasis for as long as President Trump is president because Trump was some was that illegitimate. And I was just like, that's not one. Like, you know, no matter how much you believe he's illegitimate, you know what? The Electoral College voted. The votes for were sure. – you, know, you know, he is a legitimate president. He may not be what we want as a legitimate president, but, you know – and so he's, but he's he's earned the office. He's going to veto stuff. He's going to sign stuff. You know, I want to get as much good stuff through there as possible. And at some point afterwards, we can you know debate about who's right and who's you know whether it was worth it. I, I was thinking on the way over here, Jonah. Do you remember in 2010 when Christine O'Donnell was the litmus test of whether you were a true conservative? And if you were one of those squishies who wanted Mike Pence, who had like a uh, Mike Mike Castle, pardon me, right. Mike Castle, who had like a 52 ACU rating, right. you know. He was going to be on your side just barely more than half the time. But you know what he could have done in Delaware? One. Yeah. yeah. You know. So anyway. So, I, so the idea that this, you know, if you're not with us, you're to betray, you know, nobody argues about Christine O'Donnell anymore. I, I don't see a lot of people arguing that, oh, if only more people had, you know, stood behind the witch, everything would have been hunky-dory, you know. Yeah, or if she just used blood magic, which is much more effective. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I agree with that. And this gets me back to my my hobby horse about the parties is mm. that the parties have an institutional interest yeah. in they would rather have a liberal Republican hold a seat than a conservative Democrat. But the sort of the thing that we saw in the Tea Party era of the dementism thing, mm. that he would rather have 30 solid conservatives yeah. than 60 reliable, than, than, than six, 60 six, moderate Republicans. Six, six, yeah. There are teams of East German scientists that could dis, de, dedicate the rest of their lives to teasing out the stupidity of it, right? And but there was this idea that purity is more important than persuasion, which just ran rampant through big chunks of the right. And it's still and the problem is is that that's over. The problem is that what succeeded it is worse. It's because what's worse is that it's by my lights, yeah. it's that persuasion doesn't ma- still doesn't matter, but purity doesn't matter either and it's just raw political calculation and cult of personality stuff. Mm. And um, and I'm look, I'm with you. I want to get good stuff to his desk. That's fine. But where I thought you were going to go with what's going on here is that, you know, and this is, this is a, a subtle point, but intellectuals, right? Eggheady writers, all of us, we, uh, I'm not going to shock too many people when I say, we, we like money. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but... Contrary to a loss of asininity on Twitter and whatnot, it's not our primary motive, right? If it were, there are lots of other occupations we would have gone into, yeah. right? 
one of the things historically is a sociological matter that sort of intellectual types, political types, trade on is status and influence. And right now there is a so much of the sort of backdrop of the Amari French stuff, which I don't think necessarily applies. I know it doesn't apply really to David too much, and it may not even apply to Amari, but to the forces that align on one side or the other is an argument about whose arguments are going to be dispositive about what it means to be a conservative, what it means to be a right winger. And so it's a lot of this sort of it's a lot like campus feuds um, or, or office politics where you're jockeying. People are jockeying to say when the dust settles, we're the ones who get to say what is a conservative. And I I find on I find it really interesting on Twitter. I and to the extent I read the 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 brick brack stuff thrown at me on on the interwebs, there's been an enormous spike in people calling me so-called conservative, mm. uh, the so-called right today, or um, you know that's that that first things thing was at least blatantly honest about it. it a, the the conservative consensus is over. This whole idea of fusionism or liberal democratic capitalism being defining part of what it means to be conservative is over. They're wrong, I hope, but that's what the, sort of the argument is, is that we are we are trying to elect a new priestly caste of who gets to be the legitimizing forces out there. So Henry Olson has an argument about what it means to be a conservative that is – Tucker Carlson has an argument, Yoram Hazoni, and – downgrading the market and elevating people who are pursuing the highest good is the new understanding of what conservatism is. And it just so happens that they're the ones who want to decide what the highest good is. I'm not, I'm not attributing bad faith to them. Mm. They just want to win the argument. Yeah. And so, so much of this stuff is actually sociologically should be viewed as prepositioning for the post-Trump era. Cause right now no one can win that argument because Trump is so unreliable as a bellwether, except for his personality that you can't, attach anything to it you know there was this weird it's a weird analogy 30 years i don't know how long ago a couple decades ago in florida they tried to create this artificial reef out of uh used tires and i'm, I'm fascinated by artificial reefs mm -hmm. and um and they dumped hundreds thousands of used tires into the ocean and some of them like were chained down and all the rest but chains rest rusted mm -hmm. and they moved too much and so none of the barnacles could stick to them and you couldn't get an artificial reef to form around it. It just turned the ocean floor into a desert because there wasn't um, – they weren't grounded in. But when you dump like an oil rig, that thing sits there and mm. stuff clings to it and becomes incredibly vibrant with life. Trump is like the loose tires. Mm. Nothing can stick to it. So everyone is sort of waiting for what comes after to create this new – Reef of conservatism, if if you will. So let me give another beer. Hold on one second. No, God, as you're as you're walking through that, I'm realizing. So let's picture, you know, between twenty, you know, twenty fourteen elections and Trump comes down the escalator in twenty fifteen. Right? Republicans have the House and the Senate. The presidency looks achievable, although we're going to go up against Hillary. And we, maybe we maybe there was a widespread overestimation of of how difficult beating Hillary was going to be. Although I was on the everyone's, everyone says I get everything wrong, I always said she was wildly overrated as okay. a candidate. Um, so, the at that moment, a decent number of people who had identified as conservatives, who probably had been active in the Tea Party movement, who had been really into it, around that moment they started saying, "Hey, you know what? Maybe the free market doesn't do it for me anymore." Some of these people, I, I find, 
the the people who had looked at social conservative values and and Christian values. And I think you know, I think if you're out calling people cuck all over Twitter, traditional social values and traditional Christian values are not your thing anymore. Mm-hmm. You you have made your peace with the vulgarity and the uh, the the harassment and the style of of OM. around that time. The tradition, you know, the third part of the Reaganite stool, the third leg of the stool, foreign policy of, of muscular, you know, a, you know. What some would say, warmongering, but you know, a, a no hesitation about military conflict against you know threats to us. They started looking at Iraq and Afghanistan. And said, I don't know if that works for us anymore. So it's kind of at a moment where you would think the conservative would be like, "Aha, we finally, you know, we, yep. we're, we're on the verge of it." A lot of they, all of a sudden, this rethinking started. Um, now, I'll be financial honest, crisis was a big part of it too. Yeah, no, I, you know, um, I am fascinated by. I am generally skeptical of most of the proposals to regulate the big tech companies. Mm-hmm. For, uh, Last month, I was over in Austria. I got a chance to speak to an uh, uh, organization for security and cooperation in Europe, uh, Austrian defense ministry, super cool stuff, basically saying, here's what happened in America. Did a whole, here's what happened in America. You know Did who else whole... spent time in Austria? What? You know who else spent time in Austria? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Um, but you know, to do the presentation, I did really you know, soup to nuts research into what happened and stuff. Um, and, and kind of this sense of um, – Facebook and all these other companies really did drop the ball. They they really should have been more aware. They really were mm-hmm. offering sales to anybody. Uh, and there were things that should have you know been red flags to them that were not. When everybody says we need to break up Facebook, I really want to ask people. So is the issue like you don't think they should also own Instagram? Right. Because is that really what's what's bugging people? You know what what really makes people angry at Facebook was you know Trump got elected, you sobs, and you got we think Russian ads did. Now a big part of my presentation was that these Russian ads were. Kind of silly, mm-hmm. kind of over the top. They weren't really the sort of thing that um, if English was your native language, <laughs> right, right, you know, right? They didn't really understand American political culture. Um, I, so I think their their effect is greatly exaggerated. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think I, – I have no particular faith in Mark Zuckerberg. I have no particular faith in Jack over at Twitter. I do mm-hmm. think that there are a whole bunch of suspensions and accidental terminations of account and all kinds of stuff that makes no you – know, I agree with that. You know, yeah. I just don't know if I trust the federal government to come in right. and fix any of this and, and to make it any better. Um, and I, I really feel like if if Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and these companies had come along and said, you know, we're progressive companies. We're going to create a platform that is te- theoretically open to everyone. But in the end, we don't want you using our platform to promote messages we disagree with. We're going to get rid of neo-Nazis. We're going to get rid of crazy conspiracy theorists. And we're going to get rid of conservatives who offend us. And and this is who we are. There's nothing you – if that had been the, the setup since the beginning, I think people would be uh, much more – well, OK. It's their company. They're free to do it. They pitched themselves as we're going to help connect you to the world. And there was none of this stuff when mm-hmm. you know when they started. Um, so you know, in effect, these big tech companies are changing the deal after they've become – one, after they've eaten up the mainstream – the regular media. Right. By the way, for everybody, by the way, who also gets annoyed when National Review does our little fundraising pitches and stuff. Do you mind if I take a moment to tout National Review I, <laughs> now that you've left, Jonah? Yeah. I hate writing the fundraising letters. I yeah. hate writing you – know. but on the other hand, we're not reliant on a tech um, – it's not like Facebook can suddenly pull the plug right. and destroy National Review and we can't reach anybody. Now they can take down the National Review Facebook page or something. Mm-hmm. Twitter, you know, like we're, we can be as individually subject to it as anything else. But what keeps NR going is we're not reliant upon YouTube or anything else. Dennis Prager, God bless him, mm-hmm. you know, they take down his videos. Right. You, you know, uh, uh, Stephen Crowder – you know, these guys built their businesses, built their brands, built their identities on these platforms under the expectation that they would always be around. 
And all of a sudden, the tech companies say, nope, you're not there. You know, can't have mm-hmm. you anymore. So I, I, I get that, that irritation, the idea of, wait a minute, the free market, the people operating the free market are not honoring their agreements. Maybe a fraud lawsuit would be a better tool. Yeah. Look, I mean, what is it? Section 230 or whatever, you know, the thing that allows, makes this distinction between publisher and platform that mm. lets these guys, I'm open to reasonable visit, visitation of that stuff. But at the same time, you know, Facebook is what, 13 years old, 12 years old? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty new in this world. Um, YouTube went online in 2005, 2006, something like that. Joseph Schumpeter, praise be upon him, you know, he makes the case that, I think utterly persuasively, that monopolies are um, in the long haul impossible without government sanctioning them. That the this is the point that Adam Smith makes, that, you know, business interests will always conspire against the public good. There's nothing you can do about that. The one mistake would be to sort of consecrate that in law and give the the state's monopoly on violence the power to protect AT&T or whatever. And there's an enormous history. Uh, Tim Carney's book, The Big Ripoff, great book, um, has a great history about all of this, where the big players, the second they start to really face dangers from innovative competitors, they run to the government and say, what this industry really needs is regulation. Mm. U.S. They had a U.S. Steel wanted to have wanted to literally socialize the steel industry, which would lock in his profits. Mm-hmm. Right when when Zuckerberg says the government really yeah. needs to regulate re- regulate us, he is not entering a suicide pact. He yeah. is saying, "I want the government to lock out any competition and 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 guarantee me my market share in perpetuity." And so, senators, the best thing you could do would be to maximize the cost of entering the market. Right. That's exactly <laughs> that's what they want to do. And this is a big point of my first book about how the, you know, if you're Coca-Cola, you know, regula- regulation is a barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. If you're Coca-Cola, the the Americans with Disabilities Act, let's just stipulate it's a great law. Fine. OK. It costs Coca-Cola a fraction of a penny per can to put in wheelchair ramps and all of the rest. Right. But if you're a small upstart, you know, soda company, and all of a sudden, the second you have your 500th employee, it's going to cost you $100 million to be fully compliant with it. You're going to stay at 499 employees for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And um, and so all these people want the government to get involved. Uh, first of all, they're putting their trust in the guys who run the weed agency, right? Yes. I mean, they're putting, yeah, their tr- yeah. they're putting their trust in Lois Lerner. Yeah, you know, the... Um... I wrote about this a little while ago. Like, first of all, I don't think you can argue Facebook is a utility, and for for a whole bunch, a whole host of different reasons. And I really get nervous when I hear people say, "This is now a utility." Yeah, you know, we should regulate this as a utility, as if you know. First of all, there are no like Facebook pipes running connecting right. to your home. You know, you know, on paper, somebody could go out and create a Facebook tomorrow, and a, a rival to Facebook tomorrow, and it would it would do terrific, and you'd be able to get your your cat videos, and your aunt using the. Uh, Gifts of the, uh, the the minions and, and all the stuff you know you could see everybody in high school and who got fat stalk your ex girlfriends all the stuff that Facebook is meant to be used right. for yeah. and it gives you joy in life yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no I agree with that so anyway um, but I know I get your point and the part of the problem again to go back to Schumpeter the real problem is that remember before I was talking about how intellectuals vie for status and mm-hmm. all of us right the people running Facebook are like the people who run Hollywood. Their status class, their status class values, 
uh, have to do with what their peers amongst themselves think of them. And so in a group where that is prone to incredible levels of groupthink, if you shut down Steven Crowder, not for being unfunny, but for being a practitioner of hate speech, that um, is something that you only get positive feedback from yeah. from the peers that you care about. If you shut down Louis Farrakhan, you're like, why are you shutting down this African-American yeah. who's like speaking? What, do you have a thing against African-American leaders? Right. Yeah, you know. And so the, the cultural valence and, 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 and meaning of these different sort of symbols works differently. And that's a real problem. But that's a problem that I don't know how to fix. And I don't know that the federal government does either because the federal government is going to always plan on it being run by these people. I mean, I, I know Saurabh and those guys think that – Donald Trump is the unicorn we're going to ride into uh, a sort of Catholic-infused, socially conservative state. I think that's back guano crazy um, and violates everything that the Founding Fathers said about the nature of power and the nature of freedom and the nature of liberty and all of these kinds of things. But I'm so conservative, conservatism 1.0 that I still value those things, <laughs> right? I'm not edgy and cool and think the New Deal was awesome. Um, I want to. I, I wrap this up soon because I actually got to write a column. But I wanted to, and since I'm still working on the column, I want to ask you about the topic of the okay. column so that I can <laughs> hopefully get it done in time. If if it sounds a lot like my comments, um, it'll be well. It'll be funny because the when by the time this airs, my column will have been out for a week, and people are like, hey, they, they why is Jim there? reading from Jonas Collins? He's just that, repeating it back to him. So, um, uh, Jack pointed me out to this quote from Scott Adams on Twitter, mm -hmm. where Scott Adams says that it was crazy for Nancy Pelosi to get into an insult war with the world's greatest insult, public insult master, right? And this gets to something that has bothered me for a long time about the way we talk about Trump in the politics, as a matter of political analysis. Trump has a couple superpowers. One is shamelessness, right? Mm -hmm. He just it does not care what yeah. comes out of his mouth, right? He's, he tweets like an escaped monkey from a cocaine study. That's all fine. But... Um, another power that he has is not actually from himself. It's from the supporters that he has. He can kill any Republican candidate. Yeah. By basically saying he's bad or he's not helpful or whatever. But the key there is Republican candidate. He has yeah. sway over the Republican, a significant yeah. chunk of the Republican base that you cannot get a, a, a winning uh, majority in any election if Trump turns on you. By the way, one of the rare cases it didn't work, Roy Moore. Right. Because that the one time, come on, Mr. <laughs> President, you know. Well, that, but that's the dilemma for people like Cory Gardner is that Cory Gardner needs the Trump base, but yeah. he also needs 10 more points. Yeah. And the 10 more points is really hard to get if you're, if you are a head, pa head past the sphincter suck up like DeSantis is to Trump. And so the, but anyway, my point is, is that that superpower only works against Republicans. When he attacks Nancy Pelosi, who is he convincing to all of a sudden not like Nancy Pelosi anymore? Right? I mean, if you don't like Nancy Pelosi, or if you like Nancy Pelosi, and all of a sudden Donald Trump says she's a terrible person, who's like all of a sudden, oh, I got to rethink Nancy Pelosi, right? <laughs> the people who agree with him yeah. already agree with him. Yeah. And so there's this assumption out there that Trump wins these fights with Democrats the same way he would with Republicans, and the underlying political dynamic is completely different. All right. So to evaluate Trump's approach to Pelosi at this moment, I want to, I want to counter with a question because this, this will illuminate how wise this is. Okay. 
do you think Trump wants the House to impeach him? People are thinking. I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. People were yes. thinking. There's some audio, right? The, the podcast just stopped right there. Well, actually, uh, as a side note, did you listen to the episode of the editors where uh, Charlie and Michael? I've not. I've heard people raving about it. It's, and... There are some. I, mean, I, I love Michael. I love Charlie. Yeah, it, I'm much more sympathetic, obviously, to Charlie's position on all this. But there are moments where Michael goes silent, and I actually took out my phone and was like, "Did I hit pause?" Because <laughs> it was this long time. Right, so my answer to that is. I think there are people around him who are telling him it would be a good thing. I think there are days when he wants it. Um, I think there are days when he doesn't want it. I think because he lives in such in the moment so glandularly, I don't think I can dispositively say he's all in on one strategy versus okay. another. Um, because my, by the way, I think if Trump does get impeached by the House, I think it does increase his odds for re-election. Mm-hmm. I, I think this would be very unpopular. Obviously, the closer you get to election day, the more ridiculous it seems. Right. You know, a lot of the argument you could make is, look, people had a pretty good idea of what Donald Trump's moral character was when they elected him back in 2016. If they really have a problem with it, they'll have a chance to take it out on them in the election uh, in, the, mm-hmm. in the vote in the polling places on election day 2020. Um, but here's the thing. So right now, the primary obstacle to Donald Trump getting impeached in the House is Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi. Right. In fact, maybe the only real obstacle, mm-hmm. right? And her position is getting tougher and tougher. One of the things that, you know, we talk about, people say, oh, Biden is the moderate in the – no, he's not. First of all, Biden, Joe Biden has always been in the center of where the Democratic Party is. Right. That doesn't make him a centrist, right? right? But the other important thing is we've seen with his flip-flops on – uh, the Hyde Amendment and on the China stuff in the last couple of days, is that there's a gravitational pull in each party. And it inevitably, no matter how much you try to be centrist, you're eventually going to, you know, can it happen occasionally? Do you have a Joe Lieberman on Iraq? Uh, do you have Tony Blair? Do you have McCain? on? Once in a while, it'll happen. But it's tough to be a leader of a party mm-hmm. and defy your party. So that's what Nancy Pelosi's spot right now. She, you know, the good. Okay, first of all, according to the official count, only forty-one House Democrats say they want to impeach President. You know, that's that's way short of what they need. But I suspect that there are very few House Democrats who would stand up and say, "No, we should not." Right. And every time Nancy Pelosi does, you know, she has to kind of couch it and say it's not quite right now, or we're continuing the investigation. You know, she kind of there, there's nobody who's willing to forthright and say this is a bad idea. We are going to lose in 2020 if you schmucks keep doing this. Knock it off. We have a chance to beat this guy. You guys being so hell bent on an effort that's going to completely tank in the Senate are going to ruin us, ruin everything for us. Right? Nobody's willing to stand up and really boldly say that. So when you've got one side of the argument that's very vocal and strong and loud and proud and all that, and the other side of the argument's almost embarrassed to express itself in public, which side do you think is going to win? Right. So I think the pressure on Nancy Pelosi is only going to increase and increase. So if you're Trump, if you want to be impeached. You don't attack Nancy Pelosi. You make her weaker and weaker. Like you kind of, you know, you, 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 every time he attacks her, he strengthens her, right? Mm-hmm. Democrats say, good, Nancy Pelosi is really sticking it to Trump. Ah, oh, there, you know, you know. So, you know, in a way, each time he attacks her that, this way, he's elevating her. Which is making my point. Yeah. So that, that his I, superpower I think right. has the unintended, has the reverse yeah. effect when used against Democrats. Yeah. This is assuming, though, that he wants to get impeached. And there's mm-hmm. a part of me that thinks Trump actually would still find it very – he would find it a great insult. He would mm-hmm. find it very disrespectful to him. He'd find it even more difficult to be focusing on the economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I think he would be um, – Look, you know, you think you think you think he's complaining about Mueller. You know, he yeah. he would be complaining about this. And, you know, this would stick in his craw mm-hmm. because you know they they impeached that Clinton guy and Clinton. That guy was a creep. 
you know, that, that guy Clinton, he was, uh, he was he was doing all that dirty stuff with women and lying. And he, he even lied under oath. Can you believe that guy? You know, that that mentality, you know, that mm-hmm. Trump would be insulted to be in that category. So I think on some part of him does not want to be impeached, which that's the case. You do elevate Nancy Pelosi because she will continue to be in position to put the brakes on this. Yeah. See, I, Even I, if it risks 2020. But. I, 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 I don't want to insult you, but I, I think you are you were flirting with Donald Trump four dimensional chess master speculation here. No, I think he's in. Indeci- I think he's in. in uh, there's no strategy going on. OK. OK. I, yeah, it, it, it's entirely impulsive on how he feels that day and what the Fox News cryon says that day. That's, you know, to. to yeah. But I'm saying that because he's these are the two. Right. No, that I agree with. That, that was why I had my long pause about her answer because yeah. I think there's some days he goes one way and another. Yeah. And but my my point is that you take Nancy Pelosi part out of it for two seconds when he attacks. You know, yeah, there are all those stories about two weeks ago about please, you know, please, Mr. President. His advisors are saying, you know, please, Mr. President, don't attack Joe Biden. Yeah, because you know you hear from Trump world, and I know people think that like I am this unbelievably radioactive person that is completely as the as the as the Amish would to you know a pimp somebody am, who used a zipper yeah <laughs> I, am, I am shunt right or as as the Klingons do with discommodation they've all turned their back on me and never talked to me I actually hear from a lot of people in Trump world they all think Biden will clean his clock and with the caveat which I completely mm-hmm. stipulate that you never know when Biden's going to say something completely nuts Right. Like he can just in the middle of an interview and meet the press, he could just start shouting, get these squirrels off of me and everything changes. Look at the Joe Biden of 2019. Like people's idea of Joe Biden was shaped from 2009 to 2016. And they had this vague, oh, wacky Uncle Joe. Oh, that Joe. Making making the faces behind uh, Obama at the State of the Union. People forget he earned a lot of goodwill by being Obama's wingman. Yeah. And once you take Obama out of the picture and it's just back on Joe again, one, the flip flops that he's had to make so far. I mean, I just say. Honestly, it was interesting to see the the you know uh, Trump's attacking Biden on health the same way he attracted you know Hillary on health. The Trump attacks on Hillary on health seemed unfair or somehow out of bounds until she freaking collapsed at the nine eleven right. ceremony, right? And right. then all of a sudden, like, oh oh, she's had walking pneumonia for two weeks. We just didn't tell anybody, right? You know the the um, I think Joe Biden. Look, he's what seventy seven going on seventy eight. That's you know. No, he's an That's, old dude, and he's an old weird dude. I'm, I'm stipulate. Right. But my point is that when Trump calls him Sleepy Joe or Sleepy Crazy Joe or, or you know whatever the thing is this day, that helps Biden. It just simply helps Biden. Okay. So right? while you know, I know you want to wrap up. Can I just can I just fume how bonkers furious I am about Joe Biden promising rare cure cancer if we if he gets elected? Sure. I I like I, this this happened earlier this week. Okay. And it did not set off a fight. Maybe the media is always going to take it easier on a Democrat. And yeah, maybe they're used to Biden. But gosh darn it. There are more than 100 varieties of camper. People I know are fighting cancer right now, right? And this is not the sort of thing you can just promise, like, I'm going to build a new bridge over there or something like that. And I hated it when John Edwards did his whole, Christopher Reeve is going to rise and walk when John Perry is president of the United States. You know, I remember I went back and I checked the Charles Krauthammer columns and he's, you know, Charles Krauthammer, who had every friggin' reason yeah, yeah, in the yeah. world to believe, right? You know, so if Charles Krauthammer can call this out as shameless demagoguery yeah. and raising people's hopes, by golly, people can say to Joe Biden, you don't get to make that promise. Right. No, you I agree. That. I agree. That. I, I remember in 2004 how horrified I was at the Democratic convention where I don't remember if it was Edwards or somebody else, but somebody said, wouldn't you like to have your own personal medical repair kit under your bed? And when the moment you have a problem, you can just inject stem cells or whatever it was right, and cure your problem. 
evil stupidity. And and it'd be good to sort of go back and look at all the people who were talking about, you know, like doing the stem cell thing because all roads must leave to unapologetic support of abortion. And so we're going to say we're going to cure everything if we can just harvest stem cells from embryos, right? Um, so I, I agree with you on that. I, I My only point was that there is this miss there's this assumption you know it's like the way i in the draft i have the column i might have to cut all of it but i remember rich lowry and i used to talk about this all the time at obama rallies you would see these supporters behind him on the stage whatever and obama would tell a joke i'm not saying it was a terrible joke sometimes it was just a little sort of quip it wasn't even a joke worth a chuckle from a normal human but when he said it People were doubling over in laughter, right? It was like the Monty Python skit with the the, the, the joke that makes you laugh to death. Right? I mean, it was like, oh my, the tears of laughter. And it wasn't because it was objectively funny. It was because people projected upon Obama things that weren't there and it magnified the effect of the, the joke. There is this idea that somehow uh, sleepy eyes for Chuck Todd, yeah, yeah. is incredibly clever Bon Mott. You know, like, oh my gosh, he really... And, and they elevate this stuff because they think it's effective. And those insults, Lion Ted, ooh, gosh, no, it really, it, it took a Wordsworth, like <laughs> Trump, you know, you know, maybe only Oscar Wilde could come <laughs> up with something as clever as saying a competing politician is a liar and putting the word lion in front of it, you know? and But people have convinced themselves that he is a lexicological genius of the zinger. He's just simply not. The power of it isn't in the the wordsmithery. It's in the signal to his base, I'm not supposed to like this person anymore. Mm. And that only works against Republicans. It has the opposite effect because of negative polarization or negative partisanship against Democrats because it is a signal to the other side's base if Trump hates this person, I must love them. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make two minute disagreements with that, and, that and, and they're pretty darn minute. The first is when Trump makes – here's what's the advantage of making so, fun of somebody's appearance? It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to know anything else about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Right? You know, when he calls, you know, sleepy eyes, Chuck Todd, you don't need to have any real – you don't ever need to watch Meet the Press. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have an opinion about Chuck Todd as a journalist. You don't need to have an opinion of Chuck Todd as an interviewer. I actually think he's actually pretty good. He's, mm-hmm. I think he's way better than David Gregory was. You know, that, that that all you have to do is, oh, look at his eyes. They look kind of sleepy. I, I don't really think they're that bad. But anyway, so the idea that, you know, it's an instant – it's a joke that everybody can get, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's as, it's as plain as the nose on his face, right? You know, but the second thing is it's kind of amazing. Remember that when, when Marco Rubio tried to do Trump's shtick in the mm-hmm. primary and it didn't go – like Trump uses a – it comes up with a nasty nickname for somebody. And the media starts – like treats it as a big deal, mm-hmm. repeats it endlessly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for so, like, he has this amazing, people, like, everyone's what people observe, the coverage that, like, got him the Republican primary and kind of helped him win the general in 2016 is continuing in 2020. Oh, sure, sure. Like, the, the media could say, the Flight 93 well, election has never ended. Yeah. Well, yeah. But it's also that sense of, like, you know, the, you, know, you, know you won't believe what Trump said. No, actually, believe me. We're, we're, we're well into his presidency now. I will believe what Trump said today. Mm-hmm. Trump could say, you know, like, it's not news to you, me. You'll it's believe not, that he said it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, but there's, like, you know, Trump came up with a, you know, compared Pete Buttigieg to Alfred E. Newman. Right. And Buttigieg said he'd never heard of it, proving that he was, you know, studying too hard when the rest of us were reading Mad Magazine. But, like, that would, that would turn into a story. And yeah. I'm sitting there thinking, like, this was like cable news segments were all about this. Like, they, 
Trump has an amazing ability to talk about things that you don't need to be at a fine place like the American Enterprise. You don't have to care about policy. You don't have to care about all you have to care about is here's a picture of Pete Buttigieg. Here's a picture of Alfred E. Newman. Do you think they look alike? Sure. That's fair. That's that's a fair point. That's a fair point. My only point is, is that, like, it's not a good thing. I think this is a, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. I just think Scott Adams is is high on his own supply when he thinks that like low energy Jeb was one of the greatest, you know, epithets in the history of political state. I mean, like maybe Cicero came up with you know low energy Cato the Elder, but I mean, come on, low energy Catiline. <laughs> and then we got we really do have to wrap up. Okay, sorry, but you know. We'll have you back. I mean, that is assuming that when this goes into its 78th printing <laughs> of Between Two Scorpions, uh, that you will deign to still come on The Remnant. Um, Not only that, I will I will write in a Jonah character um, who is, is you know, wisecracking as he runs through and uh, – yeah, as, as, as I'm being disemboweled by Hydra. No. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Jim Garrity, always great to have you on. Again, it's Between Two Scorpions, a dangerous – Click? Novel? Yes. Yeah. The gist is that they're a small group that doesn't work well with others. Much like many of my colleagues at National Radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, thanks very much. And uh, thank you to Jack, our producer, ombudsman, human being thing. And um, uh, surprisingly lifelike, as we used to say about Mitt Romney. Um, and uh, since I got to go, we'll save all the various and sundry stuff. And since we have no idea when this is exactly going to air, we'll save all that as well. Uh, please subscribe to the G file at Reagan 35 X and uh, dot com dot com. Uh, Don't go to the airport and expecting <laughs> the G file. It won't be there. <laughs> and uh, I'll see you next time. No, you want this podcast. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stopping still I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going where the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going where the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds, sailing on summer breeze, and skipping over the ocean like a stone.